This is the Barely Science Podcast, and we are your Barely Scientists, Ryan and Alec. Good evening. Uh, we're coming out to you from our office at Mount Stromwell Observatory, and we're going to be talking about something very interesting that just happened. I'm scared, Ryan. Oh. I, I, I read on the internet that we've only got 31 days left. 31 yes. days. It's not very long at all. And we're referring to, of course, the doomsday that impends upon us <laughs> from the solar eclipse that just happened, or the, the great solar the eclipse. The great American freedom solar eclipse. Never been more free has the moon. <laughs> so the eclipse happened, and it was a spectacular ordeal. Um, millions of people were able to see it, which is fantastic for encouraging science. Um, but it's also been fantastic for encouraging things that you might classify as barely science. Or even classify as some BS. Well, let's not jump to judgments <laughs> just yet. Let's, let's think about these, these ideas that get put forward and see if they are uh, scientific or uh, on the BS bandwagon. <laughs> so, um, while we're talking about the eclipse, let's start off with some uh, facts about it. Cool. It happened, of course, yes. on the 21st of August. Very recently. And it covered the entirety of the US, pretty much, with the line of totality going from one corner to the other. So it was, it was very uh, long diagonal, I should say. So that was very cool. Um, at places where it was longest in totality, so the moon covering the sun completely, was about 2 minutes and 40 seconds, which isn't entirely long. Um, but it's, it's pretty standard for how long these eclipses last for. And it's still long enough to put on a pretty amazing show. Oh, there, certainly. So during these eclipses, the entire sky goes pretty much completely dark because the moon blocks the sun almost perfectly. Almost perfectly. Almost. Um, so this almost perfect blocking is down to the angular size of these things. So we, we're quite familiar with the fact that the, the sun is very much larger than the moon. You happy with that, Alex? I, I'm comfortable with that fact. Very good, very good. Are you also comfortable with the idea that the sun is further away from us than the moon is? I, I can also get behind that idea. Very good. Um, so as a great cosmic coincidence, we seem to live in a time where the moon is currently at a distance away from the Earth, such that its angular size, the size we see it on the sky, is about the same angular size as what the sun is. But isn't that, doesn't that point to something far more intense and beautiful, that the sun and the moon perfectly line up, and that, you know, that's mm. telling us something special about the place we live in? Well, it could do. But the reality is the moon hasn't always been there, and it's not a perfect uh, cover-up, as yeah. you'll see. Um, so whatever alien species tried to do this cover-up, they, they failed miserably. <laughs> so if you um, look at the moon, uh, you'll see for a very long time, you'll see it slowly move away from you. So it's moving away from the Earth about three centimetres, oh, jeez, three centimetres every year, um, which means that we kind of live in a time where the moon's distance from the Earth just so happens to be about the same size of the same time when the, the size of the moon is the same as the size of the sun. 
it's actually a, it's a pretty cool effect of why it's drifting away. Mm. It's effectively losing energy from the system because of the tides, because the moon, as a lot of us know, except for you know Bill O'Reilly, um, the moon is what causes the tides because pulling on the water and the earth along with the sun as well. But that pulling actually has some energy associated with it. And as that energy is being exerted, slowly that energy is, lo- is being lost from the orbital system. And so we're very slowly losing the moon away due to its slowing down in its orbit. Yep. So very long time ago, the moon used to be much, much closer. Um, so it's not really cosmic clockwork. It's just, well, I guess it is in the sense that gravity is going in action, but it's not a, um, a well-placed machine. We'll yeah. That, and the angular sizes aren't perfectly matched up. No. In fact, it can, the moon on its orbit around, actually, its distance varies quite, like, quite a fair bit in terms that it changes its angular size on the sky mm. quite a fair bit. So depending on when you happen to see a great solar eclipse, it actually might be a thing called like an annular eclipse where you still see like a fair bit of the sun around the edge of the moon. Yeah. So those lovely ring of fire pictures come yeah. from those eclipses. Um, so if you wanted to see an eclipse for the longest amount of time any human has, uh, be inside the totality shadow, um, then you would have need to have lived in a time when the Concorde was flying. Oh, what a time. Those were the days. Yeah, we had hope for the future, but all that's gone, and we're just trying to make countries great again. Land now. Yeah. Um, so the Concorde, because it flew at supersonic speed, was able to more or less uh, stay in time with the eclipse for, for a little bit at least. And it could stay within uh, the moon's umbra or the darkest patch for about 74 minutes. So that's over an hour versus you know a couple minutes. Yeah. So that's quite impressive. Um, and you'll also see around the internet, not necessarily uh, jets, pictures from jets beneath um, or inside the shadow trying to catch up with it, but lots of pictures NASA has taken by um, a kind of a squadron of Air Force planes just taking pretty pictures. So a lot of effort was put into this to get some lovely shots. But the loveliest shot of all <laughs> comes from the great leader of America. Oh. Yes, shot right into the eyes. Yes, burnt into his retina forever. So what's the one thing we should never do with the sun, Alec? Well, it's, it's been burnt into me by uh, my, one of my supervisors, um, and he's, got, he's this big, tall American guy, and he always, whenever he'd mention looking at the sun for whatever scientific purpose, he'd say, make sure you uh, never look at the sun, never do. <laughs> and that, and that's, it is quite a serious message because... Especially if you're doing astronomy using like telescopes, binoculars, yeah. you can do permanent damage to your eyes, um, and it can be quite, you know, quite a lead into a false sense of security because the the intensity of the sun will go down as the moon passes in front of the sun. Turns out that because this was a total eclipse, there's actually that in that two minute window, it was safe to not use glasses. But before or after, you're still getting a lot of ultraviolet light, which will do significant damage mm-hmm. to your eyes. And in Washington, D.C., there was a partial eclipse, so one should not have been looking (laughs) at the sun at that time. But we'll leave that to to the Americans. Something which we should address is a bit of history. Ah. So there's been eclipses. Something we're not qualified for at all, but still fun to look at. Exactly. So there have been eclipses all throughout human history. They're not... They're not entirely rare. They happen about every 18 months or so, somewhere across the world. What is relatively rare is them to line up with a landmass. Mm. But human civilization has been long for a couple 10,000 years, I guess. 
Um, so there's been a lot of time for eclipses to have coincided with settlements and stories to develop from them. Well, it's similar to like asteroids hitting the Earth as well, or meteors, is that there are actually quite a lot. I think it's about 50 tonnes every mm. year, or oh, I forget the exact metric, but it's a, we end up with a lot of asteroid impacts and meteor impacts, but most of them hit the ocean. Mm. And the same thing happens with total solar eclipses. Most of those shadows of the moon passing over fall on the ocean. Yeah. So the, um, the, the general trend with solar eclipses is uh, an idea of nothing good's going to happen, mm. which is what you couldn't imagine, the thing that gives your, your civilization all its light and life is, is being blocked out by some means. Well, I mean, the sun was kind of the first god, really, to mm. a lot of early civilizations. It so embodied the cycle of life and death. And yeah. All those kinds of cool things. Um, so for, for a lot of people, it was a scary event. Um, in Transylvania, people thought that the sun turned, well, turned itself off, more or less, because it was... Uh, very upset with all of their um, all their sins of humanity. Dirty humans and their sins. Yes, and the, as as retribution, the sun would cover itself in kind of a poisonous dew and obscure itself from their goings on for a while. So I, I'd probably do the sun, do the same as that sun, get hide my eyes from these <laughs> cover dirty yourself humans. in the poisonous dew, ill, icky humans. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's poison's better to look at than that. <laughs> uh, the Inca. Uh, viewed the eclipse as a sign that the god uh, Inti was angry and therefore required offerings to, to make it happy again, which is a reasonable uh, uh, step of logic. And the Inca were very, very happy, and well, they seem to be quite giving offerings for a lot of different things. Oh, yes, then the Aztecs and the Mayans, they were at least the little we know of them, seems mm. to suggest they were, they were quite um, comfortable with sacrifices. Um, the Native American Tiwa tribe, to them, an eclipse meant the sun was angry with them. Again, continuing this idea of anger. Um, and that the sun was leaving to the sky to visit its home in the underworld. Ah. So I guess this connects in with the idea of uh, life and death and the cycle that the sun is usually associated with it because it sets in the evening like the death and it rises in the morning yeah. um, like renewal. But quite, quite an amusing one comes from the, Greek, uh, the Greeks. So to them, an eclipse meant that the gods were going to kill the king. So they did the natural thing of uh, finding a peasant or a prisoner and promoting them to a king for that day. What, what a lucky fellow. Oh, yes. He's a rule of the land, have a generations of uh, noble, nobility and, um, I don't know, wealth. But unfortunately for them, that's not where the plan stops. Oh. So after the eclipse, the, the previous king, the rightful king, we'll say, comes along and executes the, the previous uh, figurehead king. Oh, so the, the, the fake peasant king gets killed regardless. Yeah. So it's a bit of a self-fulfilling prophecy then. The king will always die if you always kill him, right? Well, you know, the best prophecy is the one you enact yourself. <laughs> I, I still think my favourite one is the one of the Norse myths that it was the great wolf Fenris came up and had eaten the sun and that the, the only way to get rid of him was to yell and scream until the wolf got, was scared away and spat out the sun again. Mm. That's, that's a very interesting case. I mean, how, how would people... If you were a cosmic wolf coming to the start, 
Uh, would you be scared away from a bunch of people making noise on a far distant planet, ignoring the fact sound doesn't travel through space? I don't know. The Vikings were pretty scary dudes. That's I'd true. be scared. But it, it's also an interesting thing. It's kind of, I wonder if any of them ever did an experiment. It's like, well, have, did you try not yelling and seeing if it still went away? Yeah, well, your, the thing that your life kind of revolved around just started to get eaten. Yeah. Would you want to try that experiment it's of a very, not? It's a very risky experiment. But it's kind of a cool example of um, the kind of thing that there's a philosopher um, called Karl Popper talked mm. about in his philosophy of science. It's a, what's called an unfalsifiable mm. idea. It's one of these things that if you if it's unfalsifiable, then it's not scientific. As in, if you can't prove it, if you can't prove that it's not true, then it's not a scientific idea. It's kind of verging on that because you'd never ever want to try out to see if it's yeah. not true. Exactly. Um, so we've talked a lot about myths of anger and destruction stuff, <laughs> but there's another myth from the Potamalaba people in Tonga. Uh, or Sorry, Toto. Say that three times twice. Oh, I couldn't yeah. even say it correctly the first time. <laughs> three times fast. Um, <laughs> uh, so, so they're they're from they're a group of people from Africa, and they took a much more uh, consoling view on it. So their their picture of what was happening is that the sun and the moon got into a bit of an argument, and uh, they're going at each other quite viciously. Um, <laughs> bit of a kiss. Yeah, they, they, you know, it, it wasn't a pleasant thing for them. So they took together, they came together and uh, tried to console the sun and moon, try and encourage them to reconcile their differences without uh, kind of ending life, I guess. And it became a tradition whenever there was a, a lunar, or a, rather a solar eclipse, uh, they, would, they would end all old feuds in anger. So, oh, that's actually quite lovely. It is. It's a lot better than death and destruction. But, you know, these eclipses don't really happen all that often, depending on where this group of people were located, they may not have had too many. So they could have had lots of long-standing feuds and anger between families. But that's, that's all ancient history now. Um, nowadays, we have a much uh, better uh, belief system. Well, we have science, which is a belief system in which you can test things and see if they match up with reality. So you'd hope that we've moved past these times of being afraid of solar eclipses. And luckily, we are mostly, except for uh, some interesting things. Yes, we've got not long to go. It's, it's all coming to an end. It is. Alec, of course, is referring to the end of the world due to uh, Nibiru, or Planet X. Dun, dun, dun. Yes, so we should all be quite afraid, according to Christian numerologist David Mead. So for those that don't know, numerology is kind of a field where you look into numbers and try and find patterns to see if there could be something there which keeps repeating or gives you a clue as to what might happen in the future. But it's, it's interesting. He's not the only person who's engaged in this kind of activity. In fact, someone who's very well known to any scientist or anyone who studies science is um, Isaac Newton. Mm. In fact, he spent most of his career doing things like numerology, and he was particularly interested in you know, numerical patterns in the Bible and that kind of thing. So it is interesting to see that what kind of mind is attracted to this sort of thing as yeah. well. But it's also it's important to note that um, numbers have a whole lot of interesting, really interesting relationships. 
Um, and there are a lot. We keep on finding more and more. In fact, mm. if you watch, you know, YouTube channels like Numberphile, they demonstrate really cool properties of numbers. And that because there are so many, you can, if you try hard enough, you can start to find correlations mm. and patterns. There's a, a great quote that, you know, is very applicable to astronomy and lots of science, which is that if you torture data long enough, it'll tell you whatever you, whatever you want it to. And the same kind of applies here that if you, know, if you search for the numbers hard enough, you're pretty much guaranteed to find some sort of pattern that yeah. looks kind of spooky. Yeah, today in this office, in fact, we torture lots of data to tell it, to tell us what we want it to say. Indeed. Um, so we'll, we'll put that dark part of uh, our daily activities aside. Um, so, David Mead, what do you think he bases this all on? I'm gonna I'm gonna have a stab in the dark. I'm going to guess the Bible, possibly. Yes. Yeah, so the, the Christian meteorologist, uh, meteorologist, that's not right. <laughs> Christian numerologist. Yeah. Uh, tied prelude to his name kind of gives that away. Yeah. So he's not too far off from Newton in that sense. That mm. he's looking in the Bible to find clues about things. Um, and he claims that Nibiru will appear in our skies on September 23rd, uh, just over a month after the total solar eclipse, or 33 days. That number 33. Yeah, so 33 is actually pretty much all that his theory hinges on. Mm. Um, so he hasn't actually got any uh, tested or uh, tested uh, claims, observations, or anything like that. So he's purely working from the mindset of there are clues in the Bible as to what's going to happen, and he's mm. going to find those clues. I see. And that he has found those clues, <laughs> and they were all in grave danger. Uh, so, so he, he wrote a book called Planet X. That's uh, a book? Yeah. He's oh, got, wow. He, if you look him up, if you look up David Mead, you'll find he's an author and he's got lots of interesting Oof. books. Um, so he, he says it's going to come close and uh, Nibiru is going to come close and pass us this year on the 23rd of September. So what, what is Nibiru for? Those who don't know, those who aren't in the know on the end of the world. Right, so Nibiru is an interesting case. Uh, it's, it's kind of been one of those conspiracy theories that have lingered around forever. Mm. So it's also referred to as Planet X, some kind of dark, mysterious world that scientists just aren't able to see, but it, it influences Earth. It might swing by Earth every few hundred thousand years and cause some great catastrophe. Uh, so some sort of rogue planet that swings by yeah. and causes bad things. So it could be a rogue planet that passes through our solar system or it could be one on a very eccentric orbit mm. which sometimes dips in close to the sun and zooms away back out into the far parts of the solar system. So we don't, from the science perspective, we don't actually have any real evidence for such a planet. Uh, we have some evidence to suggest there's a planet or a new planet nine disregarding Pluto for the moment. Well, well poor, little, poor little Pluto. Yeah, it's got, it's got a bunch of new friends That's, that look more like okay. Pluto. It's like, it's like um, there was a kid at the adults' table. Yeah. And then you found a whole bunch of other kids. So, well, let's, let's put the kid with they, the kids. Yeah, they can go play together. They yeah, so Pluto's fun. happier with, with all of its other uh, dwarf planet buddies. True, very true. Yeah. Um, but this new Planet Nine comes from some observations of uh, small uh, dwarf planets or planetoids out far in the solar system, and something called the Kuiper Belt. They all seem to be following uh, 
uh, very interesting orbits which don't really seem that natural, <laughs> like they would just fall there themselves. So their idea is that there's another planet, kind of Neptune size, or, uh, going around forcing these uh, objects into those orbits. And you were actually involved in the search for a time looking, yeah. looking for the, this Planet 9, trying to find observational evidence for yes, it. Yes, exactly. So earlier in the year, there was a BBC Stargazing Live, which was a run out of Starling Spring Observatory. With the beautiful, beautiful man, Brian Cox himself. Oh, he is fantastic. <laughs> I had uh, almost had a one-on-one, like, uh, wonders think, of our solar system. With you had, you had an intimate, are you saying you had an intimate moment with Brian Cox? Well, there, me and a n- number of other people. Oh. <laughs> so I was, I was closer than uh, I would have been otherwise. Um, but this, this project, we got a whole bunch of other people, uh, citizen scientists from mostly the UK, to comb through uh, the data we have with a telescope called SkyMap, which scanned the southern sky. Um, and we didn't find anything yet. There could still be things in there which corresponded with Planet Nine yeah. or of some rogue high centricity planet like Nibiru, Planet X, or whatever you want to call it. Yeah, so we are actually looking for Planet 9 and Nibiru possibly as well. Yeah, well, if it's there, we're going to find it. Imagine if you were the scientist who found the thing that's going to destroy the world. That would make you pretty famous. Yeah, for <laughs> how long? 30, 20, yeah. 20 days or something, you know. How long we have left. <laughs> so, so let's go on to, while we're getting ourselves worked up about this theory of the world's going to end, let's go on to what he what evidence he has. Ah, of course. Um, so he, he's been in a series of interviews. As, as uh, no surprise, if you're going to say the world's going to end, people will be interested in what you have to say. And you know, and he wants to get his book out there. You know, of course, got to do promotion for the book. Yeah, got to let people know. Got to feed his family. Yeah, but all, you know, let the world know that it's going to end. Yeah, yeah. Again. Or, yep. Well, well, we'll see if it falls into the category of all those ones that we've survived. Um, so he said, he's on quote saying, The Great American Eclipse of August 21st, 2017, is a major, huge harbinger. Oh, so this, so the eclipse is a warning sign. Yes, it's a warning sign. Ah. Um, let's, uh, we'll see if he, if he comes down to saying why the eclipse will trigger this event. Um, so Mr. Mead has also said uh, that in the Old Testament, he in chapter 13, uh, verse 9 to 10 of the book of Isaiah, uh, it says, See the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day, with wrath of fierce anger, to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. Oh, oh dear. That, that doesn't sound That's, Yeah, it sounds pretty ominous for us, and it carries on. The stars of heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. So you can see there's some prophetic wisdom in here. I see. And you can start to see where it's getting these kind of eclipse. It's, you know, putting pictures of the eclipse in your mind about the sun going down yeah. and the moon casting a shadow. You know, oh, no, no, no. The light. moon not giving its light. Yeah. So the moon, it's reflective, so it will be reflecting all its light straight back at the sun. Yeah. Uh, and it, due to that nice little ratio of distance and size, mm-hmm. it covers the sun almost perfectly. So you can see there's, there's, a, there's something in here. Yeah. And he said that there was a stunning numerical coincidence. 
that he calls the 33 Convergence. Ooh, the 33. Mm. Yep. So, so, so let's go on to some more quotes yeah. of what, uh, what this guy said. When the eclipse begins on August 21st, the sunrise will be dark, just as Isaiah predicts. Yeah, that, that is true. And it did. Yeah, it's happened. So other worlds of doomsday motion. Although I, I will add, though, that the uh, on this little prediction now, we, we have the advantage now of living in the future to this interview. Yeah. And actually, the sunrise itself wasn't dark. There's still a well, regular sunrise. No, so... We can predict eclipses very well. It's yeah. it's orbital mechanics, which we understand very, very well. Mm. And this, so no one expected the sunrise to be dark. So so already this... this yeah. So suppose... Okay. Suppose this is what the Bible says is true. Yeah. You can start to see that this doesn't quite line up with mm. what actually happened in the, in the great American eclipse. Yes. So the sun didn't rise dark. Yes. For for the Americans at least. Um, so he says that uh, this moon is mm. called a black moon. Okay. And I'm not sure why he's decided to give it a new name. And he also claims that these occur every 33 months. Mm. You may recall before I said uh, total solar eclipses happen on about an 18 month time scale. So a factor of two, right? We're astronomers. What's what's a factor of ten? Exactly. So you know he's he's within the astronomy ballpark, and this yeah. is an astronomy issue. <laughs> so we'll give it to him. Yeah. <laughs> Loosely give it to him. Um, I, I think in this case, though, as you said, the orbital mechanics are very well known. Yes. Um, and we have really precise values tied down on these, and so a factor of two error in this is oh, not that's enormous error. Yeah. Um. So he also says that the number 33 is uh, divine because the name of Elohim appears 33 times in Genesis. Ah. So that's interesting. There's a lot of 33s, um, or at least a 33 there. And the evidence he uses to say that this is the harbinger um, is as follows. The eclipse will start in Lincoln Beach, Oregon the 33rd state, oh. and end on the 33rd degree of Charleston, South Carolina. Wow. Such a solar eclipse has not occurred since 1918, which is 99 years, or 33 times 3. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, I was trying to stay, stay calm there. But... <laughs> so, yes. A lot of American-centric 33s here. Yeah. And from a purely objective standpoint, as you should be on pretty much everything. Yeah, I'd agree. Um, why, why would a book that were written uh, in the Middle East, we'll say, yeah. why, would it, why would its prophecies hinge on a country mm. called the United States of America, which would then subdivide an X amount of states such that with, you know, and you can see my point latitude and yes. it, We're starting to find, like, as, as I said before, where he's dug up, he's tortured the data hard enough. Mm. He's like, okay, where, where can we find the number 33? And, you know, oh, look, it's 33 degrees of latitude or longitude. I'm not sure which one he used. And then he says, oh, it's on the, the 33rd state. 
Yeah. It's been 99 years. Oh, look, we can divide by three. Yep. And to give you 33 again, it's... It's a... Uh, three, three, three. Yeah. Half the number of the devil. Ooh. That's... What? I'm surprised you didn't go with that. <laughs> um, so... So this is the broad basis of his claim. So how does this tie into Nibiru coming? I'm not entirely sure. Okay. So from what he's from what he's saying, this is just a warning sign. Ah, uh, okay. So the the question becomes: so suppose all right, so you believe in an all-powerful God. It'll give you a sign before it sends a catastrophe your way. Just I don't know. Yeah. To let you make peace or something. Yeah. Or repent is that it may be more applicable. Right, because it is the sinners that are going to die, right? The, the well, sinners. I'm not sure if this is, I'm not sure if he thinks this is the rapture. Oh. Um, or, or not, so destroy I'm not too sure. the, uh, To make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. Oh, right, of course, yes. So, so it would be for repenting. Yeah. Um... So, I'm not from from a purely physical standpoint. Yeah, I'm not sure why a solar eclipse, which is solely determined by the mechanics of the orbital mechanics of the Earth Moon Sun system, yeah, which is very well understood, has little effect on anything outside of the Earth Moon system because the masses of the Earth and the Moon are absolutely tiny. How how could that affect anything? Well, tiny relative to the the next bigger bodies. Yes. Yeah. So Jupiter would be more of a thing to worry about than mm. than an eclipse with the Earth and Moon. The only thing that really happens during a solar eclipse is you get quite a high tide. Yeah. Um, and that's never brought about an end of the world. Um, so unless this uh, Nibiru doesn't like high tide, <laughs> spots a high tide. And so it's like, screw this, I'm coming to show you a real high tide. <laughs> Swings in close to us, gravitational pull generates Ooh. an enormous tide. Um, so that's... But it's, it is worth noting that uh, something like a rogue planet is in, entirely possible. Of course. I mean, we're starting to understand now from missions like Kepler, and we have friends here at Mount Stromlo who, and peers who do, a lot, who do work in discovering exoplanets. Mm. And there's new exoplanets being discovered you know, every month or so now. And we're now starting to get the picture that pretty much every star, at least within our galaxy, quite likely has planets around it. So yeah. planets are a really common thing. And it's entirely possible that the orbits of some of these get disrupted as stars pass close enough mm. to each other and a planet might be flung out of that system. And so... A rogue planet is entirely possible. Yes. And those things might be really difficult to spot, too, because planets themselves don't emit any light. They just reflect it like the moon does. Mm. But because and because they're very small relative to stars and they don't reflect a whole lot of light, really, mm. it'd be, we couldn't really spot it. So, but whilst this thing might exist, like you said, why would it ever be predicted by the moon casting a shadow on the Earth? Yeah. So this is, from, from a purely physical standpoint, arguing from physics. Yeah. This is where it all falls over. Mm. There, is, there is nothing to suggest that a total solar eclipse would um, make this happen. Not just any total solar eclipse, because we have those every 18 or so months. Yeah. It's the one that passes over America, or the, the United States of America. That, that's the problem. Yeah. So 
So there, there seems to be no physical coincidence mm. for this. Um, so, you know, there, there's a bit of, bit of problems here. But, yeah, I guess what I'm wondering, though, yeah. what if, say, Nibiru is real and mm. it's coming for us, what's it going to do as it passes by? So Nibiru is kind of one of those things that's been hanging around for a while. So there are different ideas, people think. So it could either be on a collision course, meaning mm. it will come straight for Earth, impact on the Earth, um, and disintegrate the entire planet, pretty much. So worst outcome, basically. The... Yeah, yeah. The, the more hopeful outcome is that Nibiru only kind of gets in the general region, and mm. its gravity starts mucking up with uh, everything you have. So it will disrupt, well, it will disrupt all the orbits of the Earth-Moon system, yeah. and you'll get some pretty gnarly tides going on. Um, and those gnarly tides would uh, you know, decimate all coastal cities, which is where the majority of the population live around coastlines. Yeah. Um, and you probably set off a lot of... Uh, so in general, the uh, tectonic activity doesn't seem to be linked to uh, the mass or other massive objects in space. Uh, a lot of studies have been done on that. Uh, but if you had a, an Earth-sized object suddenly into your orbit, mm. the Earth's crust will shift. Yeah. And so you'd probably end up with fairly severe earthquakes around the place and perhaps a renewed period of volcanism. Mm. So these are things that would concern everyone greatly. Yeah, th that is pretty much doomsday-type scenarios, tidal yeah. waves and volcanoes and all the rest of it. It's very evocative. It's, it is extremely. Isn't that what that movie uh, 2012 had in it? Yeah, something like that. So um, we're in for 2012. But it, it's interesting to think about the orbital mechanics of something like this. Yeah. Um, and it's actually it's a fun thing to think about in that the way that the solar system works is that as you go further out, the objects are actually orbiting faster mm. than, they are, than the objects closer in towards the sun. And so it turns out that it's actually easier to launch, say, say you're launching something from Earth. It's far easier to launch something out and try and reach the outer solar system than mm. it is to launch something in. So it's far easier to hit something like Mars than it would be to hit the sun because you have so much velocity going sideways around the sun from the Earth compared yeah. to something like Mercury. Because you'd have to kill all of your velocity. Yeah. Um, I think you might have said that around the wrong way before. Things, things towards the sun go faster. Yeah, sorry. Yes, just just correct. I, I'm spotting some of uh, Alex Bailey's science as we go through. Yes, this. so other way around, indeed. We are um, we are Bailey scientists here, so it's all it's fine. The, it's still the same issue in that the the velocity has yes. to match up in terms of to get something like a direct collision, and then it also has to get around all the other objects that are going through, things like Jupiter. Yes, and those those objects will have a non insignificant. Like perturbation, so it will it will change how that thing orbits. It's it's a very complicated task to try and send a probe through our solar system. Yeah. So you can imagine how hard it would be to send an Earth-sized planet, you know, rocketing through. So um, this, you know, those are the predictions that mm. would happen. And I think there's another one that says you know the, the poles will flip and uh, you know the north so north. Magnetic pole will become the south one, and then we'll get irradiated with gamma rays. Yeah, and you'd have aurora it. all across the globe, which would be pretty, but also signals that you you probably got cancer from <laughs> from high cosmic ray um, damage to your DNA. Um, so this is kind of this this is all of uh, uh, Mr. David's um, predictions, pretty much.
So he will we'll end up with his final conclusions with all these 33s. And um, apparently uh, this is also 33 days. Well, he concludes that from the eclipse in 33 days' time, Nibiru will come close to us and uh, the great sign of Revelation 12 will come true. And so we'll conclude with uh, David Mead's uh, research, we'll say, <laughs> with uh, this quote. This is indeed an amazing omen and a frightful sign. It's indeed very, it's a, quite a scary thing, but like as we've just discussed, it's probably nothing that, there's no physical reason, nothing in the physics or the astronomy, but the observations and the theory mm. are both tell, uh, telling us that this is likely not going to happen. Yeah. We haven't found a planet that would correspond to Nibiru. Yeah. Um, it could be a rogue planet traveling very, very, very fast, um, but that is also unlikely. Mm. Um, so from my perspective, I'll give this one a, a, a barely science um, I'm not sure which way we want to do this. Is it a seal of approval or disapproval? Is it? Yeah, we'll say it's barely, barely we'll, scientific. We'll, is it barely science or is it BS? Oh, let's just go straight for BS. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so so that's the first uh, Nibiru thing. Um, let's let's just uh, briefly touch on on something else. I'll, I'll say already, it's it's BS. Yeah. Um, it's not doomsday. Uh, there's a spiritual healer. Uh, Carolyn oh. Combert from Glastonbury, Somerset. Somerset? Yeah, from that <laughs> lovely place. Um, who claims that this is a new, was heralding the start of a new era for humanity, a new spiritual era, a new outlook on oh, wow. the universe. Again, I'm not sure why this one in particular is the heralder for new times, um, but, you know, we're, we're a day after... Uh, this thing happened. Um, apparently, the um, apparently the the solar eclipse was meant to uh, turn on our neural pathways and energy fields um, due to parts of our DNA that had been switched off previously mm. um, and disconnected us from the universe. I see. So we're a day day um, off after the eclipse. How do you feel? Any different? Look, I look, I haven't investigated my DNA recently, yeah. but I'm not feeling any, that much different, to be honest. No. And if, we are barely scientists, but also not even close to being a biologist. But yeah. I do like to think I have a, a passing interest in things like DNA and evolution, and it's a it's an important thing to point out in that quite often there's a misconception that there's you know there's a gene for blue eyes or there's a gene for a certain colour hair or skin, but it's not, it doesn't exactly work that way mm. in that what your DNA does, what your genes do, are code the expression of proteins. So it's right down on the cell level. Mm. And when they build up in certain combinations, that's how you get the different phenotypes, so different effects that you'll notice on your body or building different types of tissue, like telling the cells to build, to become liver cells or what or heart. That's the kind of level we're talking about. And so to say that there's somehow a switch that can just be magically turned on or off, it's already quite... It raises my eyebrows a bit because it's fundamentally not how DNA tends to work in that if there is a switch, it's just normally you'll start producing more of one type of protein mm. or not. And I, yeah, 
and so far we haven't found a cosmic uh, energy protein. That is also true. <laughs> yes. Um, yes, I don't feel much different apart from falling off my bike and hurting my wrist, so this cosmic awakening hasn't really uh, helped me in any sense. <laughs> Not at all. <laughs> so... One final thing mm. before we conclude. Oh, I guess we should give our rating on this. I already gave mine. Oh, yeah, you preemptively gave it a BS. I'll yeah. second that BS call. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I don't feel any different. Uh, dear listener, up to you. Yeah, Do you feel any different? An anecdote is not data, Ryan. We need data on this. Well, if we gather a large enough sample set, we can do uh, large number statistics, yeah. which might be reliable. There's so still please, issues if you that. Please let us know. Do you feel different? Have you been healed? Do you feel your cosmic energy DNA has been switched on? Yes, we would dearly like to know because, you know, I too would like to be connected with the universe. So if there is a way, I would like to find out. Um, finally, let's just talk about something, some real science. Oh, so, so, oh we're calling it already. Calling oh, it science. I, well, you know, there's a little thing called general relativity. Might have heard of that before. Yeah, it's, it's, it's done pretty well for itself. So a guy called Albert Einstein came up with this idea of um, perhaps space is space and time are connected and they form a, a space-time, if you will, which permeates the universe. Do you want to know the really depressing thing? What's that? Einstein was in his 20s when he came up with these ideas. And it's, it's always great to compare that kind of thing to your own research. Uh, so, but, yeah. So, so, uh, so coming in for self-defense here, um, it was easier in those times to come oh. up with fundamental discoveries. You're making the low-hanging fruit Exactly. Exactly. I did that course. Um, <laughs> oh, I suffered through that as well. But let's, okay, let's talk about yeah. what we can do with it. So, so the idea with general relativity is that there's a fabric of space-time. If you take a mass like uh, us and mm. chuck us in space-time, our mass will bend space ever so slightly and create a small gravitational field. So although Alec may not feel this way, uh, me and him are attracted to each other. We're staring into each other's eyes right now. Yeah. Uh, but, but by the forces of gravity, of course. Um, but these forces are very, very weak. Um, so uh, you'll need very massive objects to see these effects. Yeah. So you need to go to things like planets, uh, which is why we're stuck to the Earth, because space-time is curved around the Earth and pulls us down. Or if you go bigger to the Sun, you can get some interesting effects, uh, something called a gravitational lens. Ooh, mm, very exciting. So a gravitational lens is the idea that um, if you chuck a bit of a, a massive thing in space, it'll warp space, and light, uh, rays of light like to travel in straight lines. And in, in space-time. So they'll, for them, traveling in a straight line past the sun will mean that they get bent ever so slightly. So they deviate from their original path uh, as viewed from their source. Yeah. Um, so what Einstein predicts is that if, uh, if you look at stars around the sun, you'd be able to see slight deviations from their known positions. Although it was interesting, though. He originally thought that this effect would be far too weak yeah. To ever measure. Yeah, so, uh, this, so this idea of these bending things, you know, you might be able to measure it, you might not. Um, but if you were going to measure it, the best way to do so would be during a solar eclipse. Mm. So the first one they had lined up was in 21st of August, 1914. 
Uh, but that got cancelled because there was a rather in, uh, well, a rather big event going on at the time. <laughs> it was the start of World War One. Ah, so they had to cancel their plans for that. But then the next eclipse started rolling around in uh, 1919, and there was an effort led by Arthur Eddington, who was a very prolific scientist at the time. And he and his colleagues uh, observed the solar eclipse, and they found a deviation. Um, it's worth noting that Newton's theory of gravity also does predict uh, deviations, yeah. but they're not on the same scale as what Einstein does. And the observations by Arthur Eddington and others uh, conclusively showed uh, that there were uh, deviations as predicted by Einstein. <laughs> so this is the point in Einstein's career where he got skyrocketed to superstar status. Yeah. Because he made this prediction that no one really thought would happen, mm. and he had a solid mathematical basis yeah. for this, and it was true. Well, a lot of the maths had already been done by people like Lorenz, and he was building mm. up a, a more physical foundation to this mathematical framework. But like you said, there wasn't observational evidence yet. Yeah. Um, so Einstein did fantastic stuff, and this is a place where eclipses have helped science immensely. Without yeah. the eclipse, um, it would have taken longer uh, for us to, to work out that Newton's theory of gravity was wrong yeah. um, and that Einstein is, Einstein's one is the best we have at the moment. It yeah. too is probably wrong because it doesn't <laughs> mesh with quantum mechanics, but that's, that's a problem for future generations. The, low, <laughs> the low-hanging fruit of 200 years from now that students will learn about, learn about hopefully. Um, so so what, do you, what do you rate this one? General relativity. I would call that one a strong science out of 10. Okay. Definitely science. Yep, yep. I, I would um, I'd probably agree with that. And I think it's, it's cool as in even now, general relativity is still being tested. Mm. Um, with what we found through we can actually observe galaxies and we can see gravitational lensing caused by galaxies. Mm. And now even more recently, the um, observation, first ever observations of gravitational waves, which are another prediction of Einstein. Almost 100 years after... Uh, general theory, well, after their prediction, pretty yeah. much. Um, so, you know, relativity's done a very good job. Absolutely. But it is wrong somewhere, yeah. and people are testing it relentlessly to try and find <laughs> where it breaks down. Because if you're the person that shows general relativity is wrong on some <laughs> level, you're, you're set for... Yeah, for that's a uh, definite Nobel Prize yeah. waiting for you. And people learn about you for, for centuries to come, provided... Nibiru doesn't pay us a visit. Yes. <laughs> so, that's the eclipse. Yeah. It happened. The president looked at the sun, or the president of the United States, I should say, um, <laughs> which is something you should never do, never look at the sun. Uh, it was a spectacular event. Uh, we've got how many days? 32 or 31 days 31 left. 31 days, something like that. Yeah. So, so, so the first thing we talked about was uh, Nibiru. That's something we can all test. Yes, let's test it all together. But yeah. in the meantime, we're after new things to try and talk about, discuss, decide whether they're barely science or BS. Um, so if you have suggestions, we want to hear them. We want more stuff to talk about. And we'll try and, if it's not a whole podcast, we'll maybe discuss them at the end. Or maybe if it's something juicy we can dig into, we might d dedicate a whole session to. Yeah, so Alec and I are on the prowl for all things that may be classified as barely science. And until next time, thanks for listening and hope you tune back in. Bye.